0: to episode 2 of Coffee and COVID. So I've recently finished the night shifts in intensive care the ones I was doing at the start of episode 1 and honestly I've never been so exhausted after shifts in all my hospital career and I don't know if it's because the shifts are 13 hours long or if it's the emotional physical tension of the situation because things can be calm but with the nature of COVID especially, they can go south very quickly. So you're constantly on edge. But whatever it is, I just completely crash after. To give you an idea, for a few hours yesterday, I was looking to eat anything I could reasonably put Nutella on. That was my sole focus. Like anything that would serve as a vehicle for more chocolate spread, that's all I was interested in. That and I saw a drawer that was open in the morning so I shut it and then a few hours later my girlfriend came back to the house and pointed out to me the reason why that drawer was left open was because one of the cats was in it. I didn't even see the cat I just thought there was a very fluffy jumper and just shut it that was it. So in this episode I'm speaking to one of my old school friends who's also a doctor Tom Simpson and a lot has changed since we used to visit each other's houses for tea. In fact, the last time I saw Tom was for drinks in London over a year ago. A sunny alfresco evening sat outside a wine bar. Remember those kind of days? Well, it was great to catch up and share experiences of this coronavirus outbreak. So here is Tom explaining exactly what he does and when he found out about things getting serious.
1: So I'm a respiratory um, doctor and... Um, and about five weeks ago, I was running um, some clinical trials in interstitial lung disease, which is a very small niche area of research and medicine. Um, and we were starting um, patients with quite advanced lung disease on a new drug. And then I was doing three clinics a week in the interstitial lung disease clinic. And life was rosy because I didn't do any nights. I didn't do any weekends. I had a very nice narrow spectrum of special interest. Um, and then coronavirus. Um, kind of hit big time, and we knew it was coming, and we had contingency plans for our service. And I got uh, promoted up to uh, consultant at Guys and St Thomas's because I finished my training about six months ago. Congratulations! Thank you very much. Um, so I went from doing quite a narrow niche, special interest job to running one of the coronavirus positive wards um, at St Thomas's. So that was my first day as a consultant, um, but I was really well supported um, because we had the infectious disease team on the ward, we had all the right kit and the patients were all quite stable, so that was an interesting start as a consultant.
0: So um, when, when did you know that things were going to change
1: for you? Uh, so we started getting alerts through from the trial company that they were getting worried because obviously the, the trial that I was involved with was an international trial, so they were getting signals from around the world that there was a real problem for the trial patients and being able to run the trial from their clinical services. Um, and Guys and St. Thomas's was one of the first hospitals in the UK that really got any experience of this because the early patients I think got admitted to St. Thomas's. So St. Thomas's was aware of these patients and how they were behaving and what was going on, probably before a lot of other places, because they they admitted the first um, sort of few. So Guys and Thomas was fully aware of kind of where this was going and was starting to make preparations quite early. Um, getting people to cancel clinics or switch clinics to telephone clinics they were trying to free up um, clinician capacity they were starting to move the hospital around they were starting to recognize that there were going to be problems above and beyond just delivering clinical care and um, so they moved quite early um, but because I had sort of special commitments to my trial patients and my clinics I was one of the later ones to be officially redeployed and um, uh, and they waited until they had to absolutely shut down all the research and all the trials before moving me back over to the of frontline mm-hmm. clinical work. So I don't know what a normal consultant job feels like because I haven't done one yet. Um, I've only been doing COVID stuff, so I haven't done, I haven't had my own clinic yet. I haven't had my own sort of ward team to supervise properly yet. So my day to day job at the moment um, is uh, at Lewisham. We have we have quite a small. Um, sort of footprint of intensive care compared to a lot of other hospitals. So we've had to be quite creative about how we manage the flow of patients who need level two or level three care, what we call HDU or ITU or, you know, organ support. Um, and one of the big problems we had was that uh, the ITU and HDU beds, the critical care beds were getting blocked up with patients who were on CPAPs. So they'd been intubated or not intubated, but they'd, they'd stabilised on CPAP, so positive airway pressure by a mask. And they just um, needed to be in a space where they could have CPAP under appropriate supervision with a good set of doctors and nurses, but not necessarily in a critical care bed. There so, wasn't so this is
0: the, this is the people who are awake who have, yep. like I said, maybe been on a ventilator, maybe not, and now are having yep. sort of assisted breathing with continuous positive airway pressure CPAP. Yeah. Yep. yep.
1: So they're not they're not um, in sort of multi organ failure. They're not difficult to manage. They just have a lot. Of, they have a high oxygen requirement and they need support with their breathing.
0: Your time off in medicine is valuable time. As with most jobs, it's just key to resting and recuperating. I was due to be in Cornwall in a couple of weeks. I might just watch some YouTube videos of the sea instead. But it seems a lot of doctors at some point will have a bigger break from the intensity of medical life, myself included, like taking four to six weeks or a longer career break, just to really sit back and reflect on things. But what happens if there's a pandemic in the middle of your plans.
1: I was actually meant to be on holiday now. I had April and May um, booked off as a kind of career break between finishing oh, this fellowship and starting as a consultant. had slightly difficult years of my own recently, with my dad passing away and my mum passed away before that, so I just wanted a couple of months of just clear my headspace time, um, which was going to be April and May. So I had all sorts of goals. I was going to learn yoga, I was going to learn how to drive, I was going to learn how to surf in Portugal, I was going to go for a long weekend away in Scotland at a spa hotel my partner and I were going to have some nice little trips and things
0: did you have this all Uh, booked
1: yeah all of it was booked um so most of it's just on hold I've had had some of it I had to cancel some of which um I've agreed with you know like the the resort in Portugal I've agreed that I'd rather have it on hold and go back another time because I think you know demanding my money back isn't any help to them and Finding a place where you can do surfing and yoga in the same place in Europe is quite hard. Um, so I'm quite keen for them not to go bust because I quite like to go there and try both of those things. But yeah, my, my two-month holiday went up in smoke. Just so
0: uh, literally on, bang onto the front line just, yeah. you
1: know. I haven't had my corporate induction. My three-day corporate induction at Lewisham hasn't happened yet. I've got my ID cards that say consultants. That's the important thing. And I've been <laughs> added on to eye care so patients can be put under my responsibility, which is also important. Um, but yeah, no, I, haven't, I don't know what a normal consultant job is at the moment, I'm still sort of finding my way. I've been really well supported, but I'm still finding my way.
0: One of the more surprising issues for some hospitals has been the demand on oxygen. I remember when I started anaesthetics and we were doing some clinical simulations, which are a little bit like escape rooms, where you walk in, there's some actors, and you're given a scenario. Mine was, there's a problem with the oxygen supply to the hospital and you don't have enough for this patient. What are you going to do? and I remember thinking how ridiculous is this? I mean what possible situation is going to cause a lack of oxygen? Turns out a coronavirus outbreak. I've always
1: thought of oxygen as quite a dangerous drug that wasn't well understood by my colleagues um, in the hospital but that's because I'm a respiratory physician that's one of our core yeah. beliefs. What I didn't <laughs> realize I just I, it never occurred to me that a hospital um, could get to the point where the supply of oxygen to patients could be threatened by a clinical situation. It just never occurred to me. And I still find it incredible that that, that is the situation. And it's not because the hospitals are badly designed or because there isn't enough oxygen. You know, it, it's simply that it was hospitals were never designed to deliver this much oxygen to this many people for this long. Until two weeks ago, I had absolutely no idea how, an, how a hospital's oxygen delivery system worked. And now yeah. I know intimately about flow rates and VIEs and pressure. <laughs> um, and it's not just about the oxygen mask, it's the delivery system. So if you're using CPAP, you're using you know, 30, 40, up to 60 litres a minute to, yeah. to just keep the patient alive.
0: In terms of new challenges, personal protective equipment is one and knowing how to use it correctly is really the key to it working, knowing how to put it on and take it off to make sure that you don't contaminate everything. Also proning which is another way of saying lying on your front was a relatively new experience for me too and proning patients has been shown to improve their respiratory function but you can imagine the trickiness of turning a patient from their back to their front whilst they're on a ventilator.
1: Certainly within my unit I've managed to keep us well stocked well supplied with decent PPE so um, it's Uh, the first day of the CPAP unit I deliberately wore it for six hours just to see how it was Um, and it's a bit sweaty and it's at the end of the day you take the mask off and your face you you look like you've been burnt Um, it just it's really quite impressive how much it it feels like it's damaging your skin. Also Um, in
0: in intensive care as well where I I am we have to not only do go in with all that on but if we're then doing like a central line or something you've then got a gown on top of that and another so you suddenly got three pairs of gloves and the dexterity goes a bit for me, especially.
1: Oh, God, yeah. Yeah, 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 If you can't and if you can't quite get the right glove size, um, if you're wearing a glove size half half too small, which would normally you'd think that was yeah. okay, like two hours ago and you suddenly realise you can't feel your fingers. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and then you feel ridiculous for having to go out and change your gloves or try and find a different set of gloves, just and then you have to take everything off and you think, Well, I'm just gonna sit it out. Um but yeah, there, there there have been some moments of real discomfort. Well, interestingly, um, I got I, I had quite a, a lot of um sort of confidence in the PPE working that was given to me because um, I don't actually remember when Ebola was happening and everyone was jumping up and down about Ebola. I was at the time I was a simulation fellow um, at Guys and St Thomas's, which again at the time thought if anywhere in London if anywhere in the UK was going to get an Ebola case guys in St. Thomas's have a very large Sierra Leonean expatriate community on their doorstep, so they thought they would be ones to get it. And so we actually did a lot of simulations um, in A&E, in the antenatal department, um, and uh, we did an ITU kind of walkthrough, and, and that involved a lot of putting on and taking off of PPE. Um, and is it the remote. same
0: PPE as you're using?
1: Similar stuff, actually, very similar. So the kind of hazmat suits, lots of gloves, you know, and, and, and the thing about PPE is... It, obviously what you're wearing is important but it's the putting it on and taking it off If you can do that competently then you're safe because it's the taking off that's the that's the really risky bit on a personal level i felt rel- i felt like though you know i had a bit of experience and knowledge in back in my memory somewhere that was going to help me with it but i do understand why a lot of staff are uh, struggling with the kind of the complexity of of the PPE and, and what you're doing Clinically, it, it's crazy. Uh, you, you're constantly seeing things that don't make sense in terms of what you normally see. You know, you're seeing people who have got SATs of sixty, sitting comfortably on their iPhone, chatting to their relatives. You see patients who have SATs of not, have SATs of like ninety eight percent in the oxygen saturations, and they pick up their spoon to eat sort of three spoonfuls of cereal, and it drops to seventy, um, yeah. and they and they don't seem to change. And you see you know there's, there's this PE phenomenon we've got patients going into type 2 respiratory failure and I cannot fully explain the mechanism other than just fatigue. I've, I've done quite a lot of time on on um, at guys and Tommy's intensive care I did six months as a reg and four months as a as an SHO and that I've seen them use proning and I've seen that the impact of proning when it works I know how complicated and actually difficult it is with an intensive care patient who's intubated ventilated and sedated to prone them so I was aware that I was aware of the concept and how complicated it can be. I've not seen it used in awake patients before. You you wouldn't normally need it. Like how how can a patient be awake on oxygen and need to be prone? It just doesn't. You know, it's not something we've ever really seen before. Um, I'm aware that the whole ventilatory and respiratory system works better on your front because I've off, I've spent the last 10 years teaching on a practical skills course for um, Kent Surrey and Sussex. And one of my go-to lines about VQ mismatch and why patients going to type two respiratory failure starts with a little story about how we evolved as horizontal animals in the trees and became vertical. And our whole respiratory system works better if we're prone on our front. And I do this little rant about it. So, you know, I, I know about this. I just never thought I'd see a situation where I had to put awake patients on their front in order to get their SATs from 60 to 95. Well, before I heard about it, I always imagined, you know, Sigourney Weaver in Ghostbusters, yeah, when she <laughs> levitates off the bed, rotates in midair, and then comes down again. I thought it would be something like that, something really smooth and kind of. Um,
0: it, it is pretty much like that. It's just about six people moving. Yeah, the it's the touch. six
1: people holding them, and and people holding onto the tube and stuff. Um, is the tricky bit um it's 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 not too bad with awake patients you, you've got to get the arm. it's all about the arms if you can get the arms yeah. out of the way then it's okay and if you can get them sat up even for a second you can do it pretty easily yeah. um but it's it's a whole new thing to be learning and how to manage it you know we're not used to managing patients lying on their front the classic hospital sick position is you lie on your back in bed and people come and feed you and give you drugs and check on you and, and actually it is a terrible sleeping the, position for the most people
0: the, i mean the, one of the other complications as well is if someone does is very unwell and then be, uh, you know rests then suddenly cpr yep. having to do yep. that the back is not
1: whole whole different ballgame
0: for patients covid19 has made communication with relatives and loved ones even more difficult as for obvious reasons people can rarely visit for me it's been one of the most emotionally challenging aspects Sure, we have technology, we have Wi-Fi, and yes, that does help. But sometimes people are so unwell that they're unable to use these things. And that's where we medical staff come in.
1: The Ebola crisis in Sierra Leone, there was definitely a problem there that the, the, the local population saw their relatives going into these treatment centres, never hearing from them again or speaking to them again, and the next thing they know, they've died. And you know, while the UK population ha- has more insight and and sort of vision into what's going on in hospitals you still don't want the sense that people are going into hospital never being heard from again and then dying and there's no communication I sort of came up with five priorities that I wanted my team to work on every day and one of them was I want someone from the team to speak to the next of kin for each relative every day Um, and I want us to make efforts to get patients on to their phones to talk to their talk to their relatives because just because a patient's holding a phone yeah you can't actually assume that with the low oxygen and other stuff going on, they actually know how to use it um, or they can use it. Or, that or whether they,
0: with, with those masks on as well, whether they can speak exactly. too. So I've made it a habit
1: on my ward rounds of calling patients, relatives from their phones for them and just at least making sure they've had a word hmm. and then making an effort to speak to the next of kin of each patient every day. I think when you do talk to relatives and you do keep them updated and they do hear from their from their from the person you know in their life that, that you're looking after they understand they know why they can't come to visit they do get it and they they're grateful for any contact they can have so i've, I've not had any kind of relatives demanding to come in in any situation they, they get it um they just want to they just want to speak to their mum dad brother husband whatever it is just to just to yeah. at least let them know that they're loved and um and we've been doing as much as we can to try and facilitate that
0: because it's, I find it a difficult thing to work around. Because almost, it's almost part of the treatment in a way. You know, where when relatives are able to come in and see, you know, yep, with that part of that mental health? So yeah it's 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 one of the most difficult things I think I've seen. I'm, I've got
1: a husband and wife on the ward at the moment, both patients. Um, and you know, the rule would be normally that we can't put them in the same bay together, and, and we haven't. But we're making it work so that they can actually spend some time together on the ward because they're both quite unwell, and, and mm. it's actually helping them both through.
0: There's been some good stuff as well. And for me, one of the most positive things I've seen is the working together from all areas. Doctors and nurses from different specialties have been working on intensive care and they've been fantastic. I've worked alongside plastic surgeons, even orthopedic surgeons, dare I say it, they've all been brilliant. It's brought a lot of people together and I think this is gonna have a great impact for medicine in the future. I put this to Tom and also asked him about how he's been coping generally.
1: Um, everyone suddenly decided they they actually always wanted to be a medreg, which is great.
0: Um,
1: <laughs> uh, and people, I, I think the hierarchy's kind of gone out of the window. Everyone's just happy to be working with their colleagues of any level. You know, everyone's on first name terms. The consultants are in and very visible and helping out and doing whatever they can do. The F ones are, are are stepping up and and covering a hell of a lot more than perhaps they'd expected. There, there's people who are really contributing a hell of a lot and actually i think there is a genuine sense of vocation in what everyone appears to be doing on on the front line i completely agree that that this kind of silo mentality is gone and everyone's just pulling together and just trying to get through it you know i I don't know whether it's because of a genuine sense of vocation they really want to help or that everyone just wants to be able to say they could tell their grandchildren an amazing story about what they did did, during all of this but i don't really i don't really care people are definitely going for extra miles yeah I've always found kind of hospital bureaucracies to be quite frustrating and it's been quite pleasant to see how fast things can get done if you're if you know if your backs up against it and it's about saving lives I think people are finally recognizing how quickly decisions can be made and how quickly those decisions can be implemented and how important it is to have clinicians all the way up to the top of the decision tree to make that happen No, my I, I think I'm I'm coping right and I, I think I've been lucky. I've wherever I've worked so far, I've not had any unexpected deaths, any crash intubations, any I haven't had a cardiac arrest in a patient who's for escalation. You know, we've been able to where appropriate, we've been able to give people good deaths, um, you know, comfortable, peaceful, managed deaths when it's inevitable. Um, and the patients that have needed to be escalated and, and to get into an intensive care bed, we've been able to do that. So I haven't seen um, too much of the kind of really traumatic cases that I, I know a lot of my colleagues have. Um, so I think I've been quite lucky. Yeah, you know, I live with my partner, so I've got people at home I can talk to. Um, I don't have any elderly relatives of my own to worry about, so that I think takes a lot of weight off my mind. Um, I'm cycling everywhere, which I think is good for my mental health. The air is clear, the sun's been out, and it's been beautiful. I bet, I um, bet London's
0: great to cycle round than it ever has been. London, before.
1: it's 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 crazy nice to cycle in London at the moment. I'm setting my personal bests on every journey. Yeah. um I've had myself a little NHS branded cycling jersey made so that no one tries to run me over. Have you been stopped? I've, anymore, or, sto- or I've been
0: waiting. I really want to get stopped when I'm driving to work, just so I can sort of like yeah, about. exactly. <laughs> yeah, see this? Well, I've had it.
1: I've had it printed on my cycling jersey. What I, uh, the two things that I was hoping for is someone would stop me and I could just point at it. Um, the other thing I was hoping for, there's a really nasty hill on the way to work and I was hoping people would sort of stand and clap as I sort of wheezed up it. <laughs> well, like um, some
0: sort of Tour de France.
1: <laughs> yeah, basically. I wanted my own socially distanced, uh, socially distance appropriate Tour de France moment as I climb up uh, Forest Hill. Um, but that hasn't unfortunately happened yet.
0: So there we go that's episode two. Thank you for listening. I'm off to check if all the cats are safe and restock on some Nutella. If you're feeling generous please do take a couple of seconds to give this podcast a five star review on your podcast app and if you would like to ask a question you can do so by going to coffeeandcovid.co.uk and if appropriate we will try to answer them in future episodes. If you're on Twitter, you can find me at dredpatrick. Music was created by David Curran. You can find links to his work in the episode notes. Well, I hope you join me in episode three. Take care and see you soon. We'll have to definitely get another uh, drinking when it's all over down that street. We we're uh... at. Yeah.
1: Yes, we'll get really long wine bottles so you can pour into each other's glasses without breaking the distance
0: ideal yeah yeah
1: we had to buy a magnum because otherwise we couldn't sustain the social distancing don't be suspicious don't be suspicious